0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co hosts, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. Fourth year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. DM Nguyen. Hi, DM.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: And third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua.
2: How's it going, Dr.
0: Parks? The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, UCR School of Medicine, Rutgers University, or Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about cybersex, part two. If you didn't hear part one, uh, listen to it, come back, or just listen to this one because they're standalone uh, podcast episodes. And we are joined once again by Dr. Lancer Nagdechi. Hi, Lancer. Hi. Dr. Lancer Nagdechi is a third-year psychiatry resident at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. He's an expert in cybersex addiction, and he is the lead author of an upcoming textbook, The Technologic Addictions, with the chapter Hacking the Human Sex Drive. Thank you for joining us, Lancer. Uh, I wanted to start off the questions with... um, so, you know, we we have all these uh, cyber sex, uh, we have this, uh, they, they, these we're going to talk about mostly folks on dating apps, online, uh, the online dating and how that's changed us. Do you feel that there is, if this is all negative, how many folks are getting into this, how many people are doing this? Is it possible that there could be a positive, there could be an upside to this, that uh people that were are super shy people that never got out much but this uh, this is a path this is a way that they can connect with people and draw them out yes it does seem uh, sexual but maybe they would never have connected with anybody in the past i'm trying to get the the
3: most positive spin i can with this so yeah so i mean definitely you know having the technology that, that we have and being able to connect more with people and improve our quality of life, whether it's dating or our sex lives. I mean, it's definitely a plus. Um, the question is, when is it, when is it bad? When is it too much? Right. So if, uh, if, if we have a 18 year old who just went to college and he's failing his courses cause he's swiping all day, clearly there's something wrong.
4: So with that, yeah. Could you, I never considered like online dating a uh, sex addiction. Um, I figured, you know, it's normalized, people do it to connect with other people. It's like going to a bar. Um, can you clarify that?
3: So going back to the definition of cyber sex, it's, uh, it's the use of the internet to engage in sexually gratifying activities. So if, if searching for a sexual partner or having, you know, kind of sexual chats, it, that counts.
1: It was like what he was talking about earlier, how cyber sex addiction uh, is being seen in three different ways um, and not just a sexual addiction. I, so, okay. I saw an article um, in uh, Frontiers in Psychiatry uh, published in 2015 by these researchers at um, in, in Israel. Um, and they found that uh, high cybersex use predicts difficulties in intimacy, and vice versa. So, if you have difficulty in forming intimate relationships, that can predict frequency of cybersex use. What are your thoughts on that, Lancer?
3: Yeah, I've definitely come across this in in, in my research. I think I actually saw that um, article. Uh, it's 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 um, you know, anecdotally, it's it's common where you know the wife is, feels jealous when the husband is watching porn or vice versa Um, on the other hand uh, some people use use uh, the cyber sex to improve their their sex lives so there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of emotion injected into into this and uh, a lot to tease out
2: yeah i kind of wanted to hop on that point in particular was uh, uh, like uh, from my psychoanalytic course sometimes we talk about uh, like pornography And they came at it from a very interesting way, which is it can be a very useful thing to explore with with somebody you're doing therapy with because the things that people are drawn to can tell you a lot about them. And if they're in relationship, that type of thing can be explored to deepen the intimacy that they could have potentially with their partner if they kind of explore like, what is it, why is it that this particular niche or fetish or thing is intriguing to you and that can kind of tell a lot because sex is so charged it comes with a lot of emotions and those emotions are invariably attached to important things within us so i don't know it would always be i would be interesting if i was doing long-term therapy with somebody to ask them why do you think it is that you're attracted to you know feet or something like that like what does that mean for you
3: Right. So, you know, I, I always tell my colleagues, um, you know, we, we really need to do a better job at getting a, a sexual history, uh, active, at asking specific questions, at getting getting down to the nitty gritty of what, what exactly is going on. Like, what what are you too ashamed to share with me that's really affecting you in other facets of your life? Um, is that a question that you ask? Is, do you ask it like that? I don't ask it like that. I kind of ease into it. I don't ask it on the first point um, on the first visit. Clearly, um, I don't ask it to everyone, but if I feel like there's something, you know, there's something under the hood that I want to explore more, I will ask it. And um, you know, I I think it depends on the person whether you want to be more blunt about it or you know ease them into it. I feel like this is something that and it, it it's very touchy, especially
0: on the first uh, session when you're doing a diagnostic assessment. Um, but I think it's it's hugely important too. Uh, what? How do you open the door to kind of this discussion with someone that you're you're talking to when you want to kind of understand how much they're into this stuff, the cybersex?
3: Well, there. I mean, there are screening tools we can use. Um, one of the screening tools was developed recently. Uh, it's called the ISST, uh, the Internet Sex Screening Test. It was developed in two thousand three, actually, by Delmonico and Miller. Uh, it's a twenty-five yes or no questions, and there's different variations of it. Um, if you if you just have that in the packet of of questionnaires, um, then that that already you know gets your foot in the door. Um, adding on to that, I, I think. When it comes to adolescents and kids, this becomes exponentially harder. How do you ask a kid about this? So I, I think as, as a field, we really need to do a better job, not only in medicine, but specifically in, in psychiatry, mental health. We went from being, you know, back in Freud's days, only about this kind of stuff to kind of shying away from it.
4: I think there are a lot of yeah. barriers, at least from my viewpoint, and including a lot of cultural barriers to how people talk about sex and how people approach something like sex addiction. Can you talk more about that?
3: Well, I, I think um, I think it's one of those things, kind of like substance use, uh, you know, or, or eating addiction, food addiction. It's just sex is something that we're hardwired to be addicted to. It's kind of easy to hijack the limbic system. So um, I think it's spread out across different cultures and different people. Um, and I, I don't think it, I, I, I can't put my finger on exactly what, um, what kind of culture is better or worse. Um, again, there are, so, there is some research saying that, you know, more conservative, more religious um, communities have a bigger problem with this. Uh, I I I recall seeing an article recently saying that Pakistan, which is you know an Islamic conservative country, was the highest consumer of pornography. Now, I don't know if that's still true or really. But yeah.
0: Is there something about uh, if you're if you grow up in a repressive family or culture that this may potentially can make it more of a problem than if if it's. Uh, you know talked about there's an ease to it
3: it's an accepted part of your humanity that kind of thing that i mean that's my opinion Uh, i don't know if that's uh, what's actually happening
2: i think there i my best guess not that anybody asked me but i think my best guess on this would be there's something about sort of the the taboo transgressive nature of certain sexual things that heightens their their appeal i mean if you go if you like look at the breakdown, like you can see statistics of like what percentage of, of people by age, by uh, by gender, by country, are looking at which videos on Pornhub, mm-hmm. and it's fascinating, like just the topics that people are interested in. And I don't know, you could, I don't know if you could paint with a broad enough, you know, brush to say why is it that people in this age group or in this region are most attracted to this particular thing, but I do think it's interesting that just the categories of the types of porn that exists so many of them have inbuilt transgression or uh, taboo or cultural violation of, of some sort, not, you know, not all the extreme stuff, but just things that nobody would really talk
3: about openly. So, so going back to the difference between like sex addiction, cyber sex addiction, one, one, one thing about cyber sex addiction, there's a thing called the AAA model. Um, you know, why is, why is it so addictive? accessibility, you know, the internet's everywhere, affordability, it's basically free and anonymity. No one knows who you are on the internet. So especially in this, you know, repressive kind of cultures, the anonymity especially is, I think, uh, you know, one of the highlights.
0: Yeah. I know that there's some theories with um, just addiction in general that um, where uh, that that this is how it kind of grows. It maybe starts with uh, you know this kind of common porn. I want to hear what your take is on this theory. This starts with like just your common porn, <laughs> just like naked people, and then it. But, but just, then naked because- people? just naked people. That's that's my idea of common
2: porn. <laughs> that's just like Josh, the entry level. Gonna- <laughs> just get your foot in the door. This is <laughs> they're just naked here. Naked
0: people having sex is my <laughs> idea of common porn. Um, and then, <laughs> <laughs> but then because it's an addiction. There's a, this effort to go, go more extreme or a boundary push, uh, and, and, and go more more of a bizarre uh, or just different nature to it. What are your thoughts about that idea or that theory of, of of how this there could be a sex addiction and this is how it goes? So that's why you'll see all these weird kind of porn hub searches.
3: So I mean, uh, in the research, they, they talk about different kinds of use and recre. You know, there's recreational use, which is what we call normal. Basically, these are people who who use it to entertain themselves or educate themselves. They're able to control their use. They get bored of it pretty soon. They go back to their normal lives. It doesn't really affect them that much. Uh, second kind of users is compulsive users. So these are people that probably have some underlying, I hate to use this word, but maladaptive sexual preoccupation or dysfunction. So maybe they have some kind of paraphilic disorder. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe they have a sexual addiction, right? And, you know, and uh, this is just a gateway for them to explore what's going on. Can I
0: ask you a chicken and egg question though? Do you feel like easier access and anonymity and the things you're talking about gives rise to more sexual perversions? And fetishistic sex and, and, and kind of unusual kind of stuff, or do you feel like it
3: was there and now it's just this is just the platform to do it or engage? Well, and, I mean, I think it depends on the person. Like I'm saying, there's 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 different there's different kinds of users that they've that, they, that the literature talks about. So you know, chicken or the egg is, is it someone with a, you know a voyeuristic um, preoccupation that just goes online to explore this? or is it someone that found it online and then now, now they have a paraphilic disorder? So it is a chicken or egg thing. I think we need more research on it.
1: I wonder too, uh, how related um, this like taboo uh, concept uh, in, in terms of kinks has to do with novelty and, and that being a huge factor of attraction
3: uh, I, I think um, I think we've seen an uh, an increase in you know popularization of the kink subculture. We see it in movies, you know Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and I think uh, you know a lot more people are being introduced to a lot of different things. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, it's you know is it contributing to your quality of life or is it detracting from it?
0: You mentioned something earlier. You a term. You said a phrase. You said hijack the limbic system. Will you explain what
3: that means? So I, I you know I've I've heard that there you know there's a theory out there saying that the companies out there they they've basically it's kind of like gambling. They've learned that the brain is pre-wired to get addicted to certain things. The food industry, you know, we have you know sugar and we have gambling. We have gaming. So sex is just another one of those things that, you know, it's very easy to profit off of considering our predisposition to it. I
2: want to maybe ask something that's probably taking us a little bit in a different direction. Sort of in the prep for this episode, um, we were talking about different ideas. And one of the things that really came to mind, and I'm going to pause right here.
0: Oh, if you're just joining us. Thank you, Joshua. If you're just joining us, listen to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. We're talking about cyber sex with our special uh, guest host, Dr. Lancer Nagdechi. Go ahead, Joshua.
2: So one of the things we were talking about in brainstorming for this was um, dating apps. And the thing that immediately came to mind was a Rick and Morty episode in one of the later seasons where there was a dating app that aliens were using to like take over uh, the world. And the way they did it was they basically told, said that they figured out an algorithm to give you your one true match in your soulmate, right? And then they'd get you in contact with that person. And then they'd quickly update it to say, actually, you have another soulmate. And then it, all of this happened just repeatedly. So people kept getting into relationships and breaking them frequently. And it destabilized everything. And the sort of thesis that they went to, now, I don't, it's obviously all you know, kind of jokey and sarcastic. But the little nugget that did stick with me from that was they were making a point about the idea of love and intimacy and attraction being based on scarcity, and the fact that having a one true soulmate is like the thing that drives people. And I wonder if Cybersex, to use that term, hijacks the limbic system, like when you have a, a grinder, Bumble or Tinder or something like that, to keep showing you these matches and the possibility of, oh, this could be, this could be the one, as opposed to perhaps more of a traditional idea where you're with somebody and then you, you kind of make it work. Like if you can't find, if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with kind of thing. It's kind of an antiquated idea, but I wonder if cyber sex is a way that's hijacking this mentality that always on to the next, always on to the best sort of that um, escalation. I don't know if my points really making sense here. Does anybody, am I just trailing?
4: I agree. I think it's like, there's too many fishes with online.
2: Yeah. Plenty of fish. That's the name of one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah:
3: So yeah, the swiping, I mean, it's basically a slot machine. you have um, a, random, a random dopamine surge, and that's essentially what gets you addicted to something.
0: Yeah, it's intermittent um, reward schedule, right? Yeah right. Yeah, that's the, the most powerful way to cause an addiction. But, but, you, but you personally don't believe it is technically an addiction.:
3: Correct? Don't know. Oh, okay. I don't you're,
0: you're on the fence. You're agnostic. But yeah. you're, research, you're researching agnostic.
3: I I'm, I'm I'm in the sidelines
0: just watching what's going on.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, you're very much in it. You're very much an
3: expert in it.
2: Didn't you do a panel as well, Lancer, about um that movie Don Juan?
3: Don uh, John, yeah. Don with, John uh, Joseph gordon Levitt.
2: Yeah. So what, good. For for audience members who aren't familiar, it's so Don John, the main character, he has a porn addiction or uses a lot of porn and then he's with scarlett johansson's character who i think they try to set up the comparison that she's like addicted to romantic comedies or i haven't seen it in a couple of years but i was wondering if you could comment on how is cyber sex different than the other ways that we consume uh like sexual media as a po- like non-cyber types is there is there an overlap is there a comparison to that I just kind of wanted you to dish on the movie Don John. (laughs) I was just trying to make
3: it sound smarter than it was.
2: We should talk about her too. And her, one of my favorite movies.
3: Yeah. So Don John, I mean, I, I, I think Don John did a pretty good job. I, I know guys, you know, my age that basically have the same story. They're, they're more or less a normal guy. They have a good social circle They're you know, they have a job, a car an apartment, but they just watch a ton of online porn. Um. The movie is, you know, is is kind of Hollywoody, and the resolution of it was was kind of also, you know, Hollywoody love story. But just, I think it gives it gives people a kind of insight into like what is really happening these days. You know, the the introduction of the movie is is very beautifully put. He describes dissociating so well, where he, you know, he for for a moment where he's watching this porn everything melts away. Um, so that that introduction is actually how I started the, the book chapter I have. It, it paints a great picture of what's uh, really going on in these people's heads.
0: Maybe we could talk a little bit about treatment of cyber sex addiction. So let's say that you've made a determination with your client there's distress over how much cyber sex they're engaging in. Perhaps they're spending hours and hours on Tinder or what they, some sort of app. And so you both kind of decided it's a problem. What kind of treatment and what, com- what are some of the um,
3: uh, factors that are involved in deciding what type of treatment to provide? So, I mean, this is a tricky one because there's so little uh, evidence out there. There's only a handful of studies. Um, they're very small um, number of participants. Some case reports... Um, with regards to, like, medications, um, SSRIs have been discussed. You know, they they attenuate the sexual drive, as we know, and they can help the um, comorbid, um, you know, th- uh, dysfunctions, associated, um, disorders that are going on, you know, if there's any depression or PTSD. What are the most common things that go along with cybersex addiction? So, you know, like I said last time, there's a lot of um, – sexual trauma, PTSD, uh, personality disorders, eating disorders, substance use disorders, other online addictions, which is the most common one. Uh, so, you know, there's a kind of theme here.
0: And so what about um, so you some medications? Uh, and what kind of gain are we talking about? Does that, like how often does that, do you know some research on how often that helps or is it kind of?
3: No, the research out there are just case reports Um, does not really mean potatoes kind of research for
0: this. Uh, Do you take this as a behaviorist perspective where it's like this um, impulse kind of disorder kind of thing, or or, or it could be be addiction, where you're quantifying it, there's going to be environmental triggers, they're going to reduce the number of hours they spend doing this activity or number of times they go to their phone. Um, there could be rewards and uh, consequences, things like that. Or do you look at, uh, their, their whole life kind of more holistically and what kind of relationships, what, what's giving them satisfaction what kind of, what do they want to do with their life that they're not very pleased with right now?
3: Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, I, I, I tend to take a holistic approach. Um, you know, oftentimes there's other comorbidities, there's depression, there's relational issues, there's personality issues. So, you know, in treating those things, I, I think, um, a lot of times it does help the addiction. Um, I'm only a 30 year resident. I haven't gone that far into actually getting to the nitty gritty, you know, reducing the hours. Uh, one, one study that I saw that was effective at reducing the hours was, um, acceptance and commitment therapy. And, um, uh, I thought that was interesting because we were talking about, you know, um, We're talking about religious uh, communities and different uh, cultures and, you know, the acceptance commitment therapy, we talk about, you know, what are your values and what are your goals? And I think that has something to, you know, there's more to expand upon in that realm.
2: I don't want to actually kind of hop onto that last part there, the values and your goals, it does seem to me that like each of the things we're talking about here has a kind of common undercurrent of perhaps emotional dysregulation or emotional gratification of some sort, um, where it's like impulse control, but you said of so many of the, like the co-occurring issues were things that had to do with trauma, they had to do with other substance use disorders. I'm wondering, is there any Uh, impetus or some kind of body of research that's involved with this that's looking at like is this does this have to do with emotional dysregulation
3: Uh, definitely definitely has to do with emotional dysregulation Um, in fact um, the proposed this proposed criteria for sexual addiction or hypersexual disorder Um, and the 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 common criteria are loss of control excessive time and and continuing despite negative consequences uh, we spoke about you know we spoke about um, online dissociation where you you kind of um, detach while you while you're while you're um, engaging in these activities Um, and so that that kind of ties into the uh, mood regulation emotion regulation strategies especially considering the you know, association with sexual abuse, PTSD, and um, emotional insecurity, attachment, anxiety. So I, I think I, I agree with you, there is an undercurrent here.
4: Just to be sure, when we're talking about using SSRIs, you're using a side effect of the medication to kind of delay sexual interest. It doesn't really help with the obsession. You're not using like it for an obsession quality, Right.
3: Well, I mean, what people have, have spoken about is that, it, it well, number one, it helps any underlying issues. So if the patient's depressed, the patient has PTSD, it'll, it'll help with that. And number two is, yes, the side effect, is, 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 it's a known side effect. So, you know, if it works, it works.
2: I'm sorry. I just, I don't know if I'm buying the whole behavioral side of it as being like the cute. I mean, yes, this is very common for me being very psychodynamically oriented. But I I feels like all of this kind of has an undercurrent of like, it, it smacks of emotional need somehow. It smacks of there's something there that's a gratification. And that perhaps there's like a very, maybe there is a behavioral component in the dispelling of... Anxiety um when engaging sort of different cybersexual activities. I don't know if there's a question there. I just wanna I wanna push up against the CBT A C T
3: paradigm. <laughs> I, I I agree with you. There definitely is. And um, you know, so for you know, for for food addiction, there's food addiction and eating addiction, where the food addiction is a substance kind of sub- substance use addiction. And the eating addiction is more of a behavioral addiction. Love that distinction. Yeah. So I kind of feel like there's something similar going on in, in, in sex addiction, cyber sex addiction, where some people are, are, you know, neurobiologically addicted to the sex. The sex is the substance, but there's another subset of people that are addicted to the behavior or have an impulsive kind of attraction to that behavior.
1: You mean like spending all day swiping?
3: Yeah.
0: Is part of your treatment uh, helping folks uh, meet in person? I know the pandemic is is what it is, but uh, before pre-pandemic, is that part of the treatment too, that that you want to broaden the variety of
3: interaction with folks and dating or, or not? I mean, yeah, like you said, the pandemic kind of put a dent in everything. But, but yeah, I, I, I like to encourage my patients to be as social as possible, as safe as possible. So I think, um, you know, like we said, there's kind of this, um, this emotional regulation here. I think that uh, having, um, having good relationships is kind of a key to just overall quality of life. And that's gonna do
0: it for with us for tonight. Thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psych. We have talked about cybersex with our special guest host, Dr. Lancer Nagdechi. Thank you, Lancer, for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshiyamaguchi, DM Nguyen, and Joshua Poole. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on K-U-C-R at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode is recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Ismail Gonzalez. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.